at the end of the novel, the quote, hand of dog, hand of dog, the hand of dog, the hand of, uh, <laughs> the hand of Kojak. Um, <laughs> at the end of the, maybe that is, maybe it's a big paw, a big fucking yeah. God paw comes down and Kojak's like, fuck you. <laughs> Genuinely like growing up religious. I always thought it was so interesting. This is like a child's thoughts too. So you have to bear with me, but like dog and God being like the inverse of each other. Like there's something there. That right? Like something. dogs are very associated with God. Yeah, man, I'm with you. <laughs> to episode 170 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss the final third of Stephen King's 1978 novel, The Stand. All right, James, I am feeling good this week. I am I am happy. I am back in my uh, comforting world of a post-apocalyptic America with Stephen King and away from the scary TV show <laughs> that uh, hurt me in some ways. Um I mean, I'm interested to get back to it, but but we're back in Bookland, and I am proud to report that things in Las Vegas are not nearly as bad as I thought they were. Um, I was very glad to see that the uh, depiction of Las Vegas and, and under Randall Flagg in the TV show bears almost no resemblance to what we what we got in the book. Yeah, I we've been drawing the comparisons to the Lord of the Rings this entire coverage, which I had no idea about. Um, you brought that up in our first episode, and it's just continued. There's references galore just constantly um, in the text, even for where Stephen King is doing that. And I can't, I couldn't help but think of uh, Vegas as like Saruman's hub. Like, like it, I think it's Isengard, right? Isengard is where he's like amassing his his armies and stuff, the Urukai and everything. I I think maybe I'm wrong, and that that's embarrassing if so. But uh, <laughs> isn't isn't that Saruman? Isn't Isengard Saruman? That's what I said, right? Saruman? Oh, okay. Got you. I think yeah. it's Sauron. It's, it doesn't help that their names are basically identical. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that the Vegas reminded me of that sort of like it was more serious, seemed like more more orchestrated and planned and less right. like a like a teenager's fever dream. Um, but but I did like things in the show. You See, know, I, we talked about it last week. And I and, mean, and we're not going to talk about the show too much, but I, I had to make this comparison because last in the last episode, if you listen to it, I... Um, openly questioned. I was like, is this what happens in the book? I don't remember. Maybe it does. There's been a lot of sex. So maybe it's just fucking wild sex parties when they get to Las Vegas. But what's funny is that's kind of what I think like the reader would expect. And I think what Stephen King does is subvert that and give you something different. And instead he goes the Nazi Germany route, which is what he references a few times. And he says, everything is very orderly. Everything works. Everything is very functional. There's not a lot of like extra... I don't know, excess at all in this society. In fact, that's the appeal of it. And a lot of good people, otherwise good people, are there because they like the order and they like the structure. It's not it's not a bunch of like sex deviant, like whatever. If you I mean, not my words, but like that's what I think a lot of people would look at what's going on in the Las Vegas in the show and call it that. So um it's not that. It's it's just I don't know. It's like just different people, but they're just people. 
he Randall Fly goes as far as to like threaten people who who take drugs and you know yeah are, drugs are, are like, like illegal like yeah punishable by death <laughs> right apparently. which did not seem to be the case I mean I guess we didn't see any specific drug use that I can think of in the show but I think it's implied that people mm-hmm. are intoxicated in certain ways but oh uh, for sure there's like light drinking and that's all that is allowed <laughs> it seems like you know but not drunkenness yeah uh, anyway it's just a very different Las Vegas but um. That just it, it, that's just one piece of it, honestly. Like coming back to the book after watching the five episodes of the show, it's just it's just nice. Like I, I I like Stephen King's writing style. He has so much excess in his books in the sense that like he gives you so many details you don't need, but it's such a stylistic thing that works so well for his fiction. And then because he writes that way, you get so many extra things that like many other authors don't give you. He's got these like excellent eye for just random ass little details and the inner lives of people and his characters that feels incredibly personal. And you get almost like a voyeuristic feeling watching them go about their lives and, and every, you know, minute detail, whether they're, you know, people using the bathroom or having sex or, you know, thinking about what they're going to do today, watching TV, whatever it is, like they do mundane shit. They do interesting shit. They do like gross shit. It feels very personal. Mm-hmm. And he just, when he takes that and he, and he goes into all these different minds and then some of them, he'll give you that perspective on like disturbed minds and it just cuts so deep and it's so interesting to me. And it's just something that no Stephen King adaptation can really do because it's a very unique two books thing. It's also extremely natural feeling like they don't feel like contrived details. It doesn't feel like a writer trying to add detail to a novel. It feels like Mm. real life. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel contrived. Which, of course, is a magic trick that he's performing incredibly well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because those are all choices that you writers have to make. But yeah, it doesn't feel like he's like, I'm going to now include this one random detail. Like it it just works. I don't know The the choices. He makes so many pop culture references. Uh, that's something I'm noticing. Like he references so many books, so many movies, songs, whatever it is, all straight out of the the real world. And I'm always struck by like how well read and like, you know what I mean? Like he he just know all these different characters have different movies they've seen once or different books they've read once, and he'll reference shit that we've covered on this podcast. And it, it always delights me whenever that happens. Yeah, and again, it feels it feels natural. It doesn't feel like yeah. he's making a reference for the sake of making a reference. He's making a reference because it, in some way, pertains to this story. Like it'll be a commentary on the story. If you know what he's talking about, you can kind of get a little bit of an insight into what's going on. It's like a very deliberate reference, right? You, you know what I mean? Yeah, you're right. It's not just throwaway. It's not I just know, it's uh, cool. whatever it was, skyscraper or what was the movie? And the, yeah, there was like a it's not Blu-ray. just referencing The Rock for no reason. You know, it's funny as much as that. I that did get a laugh out of me. Um, yeah, definitely much less integrated. You know, like he references Lord of the Rings several times in this book, and I think it's very. You know, you can learn a lot from paying attention to those messages. Yeah, so I, I mean, I figure for this episode we're gonna go down the line and talk about what happens with characters because that's what we've been doing for this coverage. Um, but I'm going to start with some characters who uh, don't last very long, um, and that's Judge Ferris and then uh, Dana Jurgens. So Judge Ferris, um, the judge attempts to infiltrate Las Vegas from the north, but he is intercepted by flag sentries in Idaho. Judge is killed by several shots to the head. However, the, ju- uh, the judge's death is a direct violation of Flag's orders and is a sign that Flag's power is fallible. 
the sentries had been under strict orders to not, quote, mark his head so that the head could be delivered as a message to the free zone. And the narrative suggests that Flag brutally kills the surviving sentry, Bobby Terry, for disfiguring the judge's face and hampering his plan. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we're following the judge. He's driving through Oregon, which I thought was fun because I'm mm-hmm. currently in Oregon uh, <laughs> and live in live in Portland. Um, and then yeah, and uh, you know, the the shootout with Bobby Terry and it's uh, Bobby Terry shoots his like friend, his co you know patrolman, and it's messy and fucked up and and yeah, Bobby Terry, you know, doesn't work out well for him. Yeah. There's this. Um... We I remember talking about it way back in our, f- our first project coverage. It um, that was the first thing we ever covered. And it was Stephen King. In this story, the little trickle of like a guiding hand of fate kept showing up. Um, and and I feel like with this shootout situation, like we even got the perspective of this of this like s- this scout or whatever that he was thinking like I can't I can't you know damage his face I need to make sure he comes back but then he like makes a mistake and there's it seems like like it was just like fated to have happened like this mm-hmm. um and you know you, I don't know if it was like a Randall influence which I doubt cuz he you know that's not what he wanted but maybe it was the influence of somebody else to make it happen this specific way yeah. so that this person would suffer I, I'm I not mean, really we sure s- it just seems you know there's a reference to a hand of god later so I think right. you're not completely reading into it to see some fate here or there um, you're right, you know, and that does one one thing that stood out for me from the the judge's sort of, you know, final moments is, is uh, right before that when he is he's in the hotel and the crow comes, and he starts having these thoughts about like what if Randall is like embodying that crow and looking at me right now, and then he starts referencing the Raven, like Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, and quoting that and just. I don't know, it was cool, and then, uh, you know, trying to shoot at it, and, and like, you know, flying away, and, like, you know that even though he's, like, having this, you know, fantasy about it, you're like, that probably is what's happening, right. so he's, he's, like, tapping into something here. Well, he's, like, staring at the crow, and the crow has, like, rings of red red around its eyes or something, so yeah. you're like, okay, so, like, Randall's all all black, scary animals, I guess, like, yeah. wolves. And, and then he thinks, like, if I shoot it right now, will it trap him inside the body yeah, of the crow yeah, and all that, that stuff? Funny. And, like, I don't know. I felt like there was something to it, you know? It's like, maybe yeah. it would have if it had worked. Well, we do come to find out that, like, he, like, once we get further into the Rand- Randall flag stuff, like, you know, to reference Lord of the Rings again, there's this sort of eye power that he has. Yep. That he's, like, projecting his, his himself into things. Yeah, he's, put, he's thing. projecting his eye around. You can see many, many things. It's true. I think it's directly influenced by it. Okay, if you're ready, let's go to Dana. Yeah. So in Las Vegas, uh, Jurgens uh, works with a streetlight repair crew and sleeps with Lloyd Henry as part of her ploy to obtain information. While working with the crew, she observes Tom Cullen on a passing truck. Flag, aware of her identity through telepathy, summons her to his office and attempts to make her reveal the third spy, whose mind he is unable to penetrate. To protect Cullen and save herself from torture at the hand of Flag, Jurgens commits suicide by ramming her head through a plate glass window and turning so that the broken edges slice open her jugular vein. This act of free will indicates the beginning of Flag's downfall, as while he foresaw her attempt to assassinate him and consequently thwarted the attempt, he did not predict her suicide attempt and could therefore not prevent her death. Jurgens' body is desecrated by Flag and later burned outside of Las Vegas. So, I'm curious to know what you thought of this version of Dana's final moments. Also, maybe before we get to the final moments, um, her and her and Lloyd, we see Lloyd here, and, and was I right in that this version of Lloyd is different, too, from, from the show? 
yeah different more like we've talked about more intimidating i think he's got like more he's got more going on he is sort of there are things from that the show took and sort of exacerbated made like uh larger in the character i guess Mm -hmm. uh bigger swings but uh yeah i actually felt like all this stuff because we we the show kind of jumped ahead of where we were in the book uh, yeah, where we, we had gotten and so i kind of assumed that a lot of that stuff was show invention and i was i kept being surprised that like oh shit this is like a stephen king thing like uh dana sleeping with lloyd um uh her killing yeah, herself which she doesn't like, actually do in the show it gets interrupted but yeah she does in the book for sure although it's interesting the way she sort of um situates it is she she compares herself to uh what is it matahari uh you know like a a woman who was a, an assassin who would sleep with people and then kill them as far as I, my understanding of it is so it, it's it's like more of her choice like she's deliberately doing it to get close whereas mm-hmm. it, in the show it was definitely set up differently yeah i mean it still kind of felt like she knew what she was doing like she For knew sure. that she was just trying to control him and, and that kind of thing yeah. but yeah i agreed it was like it was, you know, because the internal thoughts were getting more of that, like, sort of cunning side of it, where she's, like, yeah. planning all this and using it to her advantage. But um, what about her and her and Randall? What did you think of that conversation? Oh, interesting stuff. Uh, it, it played f- similarly, but, again, I think it's just, like, something about the imagination of, of Randall and see, starting to see some of his powers. We do, I mean, we see him levitate in the show. We see him, like... Uh, she she strikes a blow with him in in this fight right at in the in the book as well like she's able to like pull a knife out or something she pulls a knife out but he turns it into a banana that's what it is yeah (laughs) which sounds funnier than than it is in the book right like just saying that out loud sounds funny but it worked in the in the moment like having yeah it it works but i actually like how they did it in the show better i liked him actually getting stabbed um you know I, i just thought that was cooler but for the most part i thought this this version is a little more interesting um one thing I liked about it was uh, all the stories we'd heard about Randall being able to drive people mad by just like looking into their eyes mm-hmm. and the different stories. And it's normally like stuff she'd heard, you know, here or there. And then he kind of attempts to to like brainwash her and he's promising her, oh, yeah, you know, you're going to you're going to be allowed to leave. And he calls up Lloyd and he tells tells him to bring around, a you know, a bike for her and um she has to like shake it off and realize that that's what's happening. So you can see his influence um, more here. And then um, I I really like the detail that was omitted from the show of him raging and kicking her body around after she died. And maybe that would have been too dark. I don't know. But like it again, it it shows just like that, you know, summary you read, it kind of shows that he's losing it, right? Like he's yeah. starting, it's starting to come apart a little bit. For and him. I did that. That's one thing I wanted to ask you. Like, do you feel like you have a strong handle on what exactly, because you know, with, with Pennywise, we got in it, we kind mm-hmm. of got to know that like the kids fear of him was, was like feeding his powers. Um, what do you think Randall here? Like, like, what does that mean for him? Like, why is he starting to lose it even with the Dana stuff? Yeah, I, I do have theories about that. I, I think I'm going to save it for when we get, because I have a section where we're going to talk about Randall Flagg in particular. Okay. Um, and I'll save it for there because I think more than the first time I read this book, I have more theories about what's going on with Randall Flagg, like what he represents um, in the narrative and also, yeah, like what kind of creature I guess he might be. Um, yeah. So I think next let's talk about Harold Lauder, who is, you know, one of our major characters from book two, like a lot happens with him setting up the bomb and leaving. 
And we only kind of get like one real section of Harold, um, you know, one of the like, significant portion in, in book three. So let's talk about what happens with him. Harold yeah. Lauder, after detonating the bomb, which kills seven people, Lauder and Cross flee towards Las Vegas. Lauder wrecks his motorcycle and breaks his leg after slipping on an oil slick. It's implied that Flag, mistrustful of Lauder for being, quote, too full of thoughts, arranged the accident. Lauder survives, though badly injured, and attempts to shoot Cross, who abandons him. Realizing that he is dying, Lauder writes a note in which he takes responsibility for his actions and expresses remorse, which he signs Hawk. As a way of accepting the best version of himself that existed briefly in Boulder, Lauder then commits suicide by shooting himself in the head. His body is later found by Redmond's traveling group, and they do not bury his corpse, choosing to leave it intact beyond Stu's simple gesture of gently removing the pistol from Harold's mouth and tossing it aside. To Redmond's surprise, he finds himself wanting to avenge Lauder's death along with the bombing victims when he finally encounters Flag. What did you think of the way this character ends up? Because yeah. I, I think it's safe to say that this is not what you would usually expect for this kind of character, right? Like, this is a different kind of ending. Absolutely. It's completely shocked uh, that... And, and I think King does something smart here, and I think he has done this many times in the, in the, the, the many books that we've read on the podcast. Um, he puts in so much legwork to set this character up to really Oh, because he breaks understand. his leg? I get you. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. But um, okay, sorry. So, so like, yeah, no, he, he puts in so much legwork to make you understand this character, understand their motives, understand why they're doing these things, why they're dangerous and what where you think that they'll be going, like setting up a, a clear path of what you would expect them to do. Um, and then pulling the rug out from under you by by having something like this happen. And it's shocking and subverting. I, I think subverting expectations is one of my. I think it's one of the best things you can do in storytelling, right? And I think mm-hmm. there there will be there will be people who react strongly to subverting their expectations. Some people want their expectations to be met. And just um, subverting expectations is not a replacement for creating a good narrative, um, as we learned from the the final season of Game of Thrones. Anyway, um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I, what I mean, yeah, yeah, satisfyingly, please make it satisfying. But yeah, subverting still expectations, has to be satisfying. I mean, like I said, he did the legwork. He did the legwork to to set this character up and and it makes sense for him to die here in the grand scheme of things but at the same time you definitely didn't see it coming yeah did you feel like you were good were you hoping or did you expect to get some sort of justice and did you feel like that was taken like yeah yeah a little bit yeah i felt like he was a character who had his comeuppance on the way you know like it was it was he was gonna i thought that the everyone would get revenge especially for the fact that like nick died because of this but instead, it's just kind of like cosmic, right? Although it is yeah. sort of caused by Randall Flagg. So it's it's really Harold's undoing in that sense. Yeah. Right? I mean, but like you say, it is it is like one of these random acts, these random things that can happen. And it mm-hmm. does it plays to like the randomness of the universe where it's just like yeah. sometimes justice isn't served. Well, and, and he loves the way he sets it up is so smart, too, because when you first get to Harold's chapter, he's already got the broken leg. And he's like laying yeah. there like, I'm going to die. And you're like, wait, what happened? <laughs> Which is always a fun. Yeah, it's like the words, the the thoughts of a dying man or something. And you're like, holy yeah. shit, Harold's dying. 
Yeah. And then he goes back and, and explains how he got here. And, you know, as someone who suffered, a, you know, pretty brutal leg injuries, um, reading about brutal leg injuries is definitely harrowing. And we get several of them into this yeah. book. Well, um, I think that the, the mirror between Harold and Stu getting leg injuries is like not lost on me either. It's like clearly yeah. there's something there's a lot going on with Stu. Well, and, and we haven't got to Stu yet, but like his leg injury ends up saving him, whereas Harold's leg injury is his downfall. Right, and and then you also have the, the Stu is the, the the group that finds him. Stu's there, and Stu's the only one who interacts with Harold, um, and like you know, it does so shows some like piece of mercy in his eyes. Um, yeah. And after after someone killed their friend Nick, kind of feels bad him? for him. Yeah, seems yeah. like. And you know, I think it's also really smartly done on the level of creating the expectation that Stu's going to die. We haven't got there yet, but like you have just seen a character die from a vicious leg wound. And mm-hmm. then when Stu gets a vicious leg wound, you're like, well, <laughs> uh, there goes Stu Redman. I guess he's going to die. And like King leans into it and he does that on purpose. I-, I think he directly is setting the expectation of like, we just saw it did not go well for this other character. So when it happens to Stu, you're primed for it to be a death sentence. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, and we're going to get to Stu in a little bit, but in hindsight, the idea that like Mother Abigail set up that somebody's going to fall on their way to this mission. Um, like we should have, I should have known at least, but I didn't that like that would lead to something unexpected. Again, subverting expectations where I'm like, Oh, someone falls. The idea of that is someone dies on their way to the trip. Yeah. Doesn't make it, but someone falls in a different way. Yeah. Uh, which it's just smart, smartly done. Great, great, uh, plotting on, on King's part here. Um, let's talk a little bit about, Nadine, because she is sort of uh, Harold's, you know, partner here. Cross travels west with Lauder. When Lauder's motorcycle crashes, she implies that it was her intention for Lauder to die in a motorcycle accident instead of being killed by flag upon their arrival in Las Vegas. Lauder fires his pistol at Cross and nearly hits her, suggesting that Cross may unconsciously prefer death to the dark consummation waiting for her in Las Vegas. Okay, this is some interesting editorializing by the summary. (laughs) And also revealing limitations to Flag's power. Yes, definitely that. Um, Cross continues on towards Las Vegas until Flag appears to her in the desert. Flag reveals his true nature to Cross by raping her, an experience that is so horrific to Cross, despite causing her immense pleasure, that she falls into catatonia. Flag takes Cross with him to Las Vegas, and the pair reside in the penthouse suite of the MGM Grand Hotel Complex. Cross's pregnancy is announced shortly after their, arri- their arrival in Las Vegas. Cross eventually recovers sufficiently to taunt Flag about his inevitable failure until, in his rage, Flag throws Cross off the penthouse sun deck and she is killed in the fall. Cross smiles as she falls, and afterward Flag observes that she had taunted him with the hopes that he would kill her. You know, another character who meets a weird, unexpected end. But uh, yeah, I mean, jumping back to the stuff with Harold, uh, mm-hmm. her realizing the limitations of his power is also us, the reader, realizing the limitations of his power. He can see all of he can see all things, but it seems like he can't control to everything, an extent right? to. Like, yeah, he, can't, like, he, can't, he can't make a bullet not fire at somebody. Yeah. And then uh, to move into him raping her, which was uh super i don't know not as consensual as i thought i thought like this whole time that she was like it was leading up to her sort of accepting her her role as as what the story has been setting up and stuff 
Yeah. Um, and then it was just like very, I don't know, graphic and yeah, it was, and it's uncomfortable and, you know, incredibly triggering for people and, you know, it's a rape scene and like, those are incredibly controversial, right? Like, and you know, we're two white guys, you know, who are not people who are going to be like, I don't know, most affected by this maybe. So it's tough for me to, to say that it didn't bother me, but like ultimately I, I thought the scene worked well for what it was. And the sense that it was someone having sex with like a Lovecraftian, like, you know, entity that is driving you mad. Um, I thought it was really effectively written and uh, scary. And, uh, you know, one of Randall Flagg's most terrifying moments in the book, I think, is this this sequence. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's extremely uncomfortable and, yeah. and it's meant to be. Um, and yeah, like I, I just from my own perspective, I was like, "Ooh, this is this is wild. This is a crazy scene it, like it's and King does this all the time and power to him, I guess, for for I don't know, wanting to take the challenge on. But like these are these subjects are so difficult to write about. Yeah. And uh, to to do it like this, as like I don't know. And, I mean, and I'm like sure said, he's lost. Not to put it in like a callous way, but I'm sure he's lost many many readers over the years, but gained others. So, you know, it's worked out for him. But it's not to say that you know every writer should be doing this because you have to understand you're going to lose people as soon as you touch anything like this. Yeah, it's it's one of those. It's it's very interesting because it it always comes back to the the idea of like what can you write? You know, yeah. what are you, what like like because these things do happen. Um, and to, to, right. to kind of turn a blind eye is also and, another, yeah. is it Stephen King's story to tell? Probably not, but yeah, you know, it's <laughs> also, it was also the seventies. So things, things obviously have changed a lot since then. Um, which I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to like completely forgive it. You know, if you're, if you're the kind of person who like, this is just a non-starter for you, then I think a lot of Stephen King's work is probably going to be a non-starter for you because he just yeah. gets into a lot of areas that are just the darkest, you know, grossest stuff you can write about controversial, controversial. Yeah, i mean absolutely. the end of the end of it comes to mind with children yeah. so well and and other other scenes from that book you know lots of other scenes yeah. from that book so and and lots of his books have have this kind of stuff in it but um as far as that goes again i thought it was a very scary scene i thought that flag was terrifying here at one of his most frightening uh moments and then and you do you do get glimpses of the of the beast like you're talking about yeah. the creature that he is um and like just you know it's just savage well and how little he cares for her is also so tragic like he couldn't care less like she is nothing to him and she's given up everything to be to this point um and it's again just like harold you know this self-inflicted wound like she gave up the the choice to be a good person and to you know do the right thing and chose this instead and you know it doesn't work out for her (laughs) right and then like you said she just goes basically catatonic like she she's like yeah kind of although she she's you know more together than initially thought because she fools him into killing him yeah um and killing his own child and that's where it's really obvious that that he has lost it right like he is completely gone because he has just killed his heir which like so much was about i don't know um it's it's really interesting to see to see him come apart in this way and it's like every little bit we get shows another piece of him losing control losing you know the things that he's been building and it seems so self-inflicted too in so many ways right it's his his own nature he's starting to believe that he's a god 
and forget that he like was once a man. And the more that he does that, the more he believes himself infallible. And then when every time he is proven to not be, it's like this huge blow. I think that you're, for me, we'll, we'll get into it a little more, but for me, you're touching on basically the essence of, of Flag for, for mm-hmm. what I can draw, derive, like what his, he's like this idea of power that is fallible, power that, that like is self-destructive. It's mm-hmm. like, and I think that that goes to, like, that, there's a lot that's in this, this story about that too, like weaponry, war, yeah. human, he, you know, human race, like what the human race will do to itself. Um, and like, yeah. I think he kind of represents a lot of that stuff arrogance. Yeah. I think yeah. he, he, he is sort of a manifestation of a lot of those forces in, you know, humanity, um, are, are sort of embodied and made into a villain in Randall flag. Um, yeah. so since we're speaking so much about Randall flag, I think let's, let's touch on him. Maybe we'll save the very end of the book, but let's go ahead and talk about him. So Flag appears to various survivors in their dreams, whereby he provides the dreamers with a choice. Flag attracts those who are drawn to structure, destruction, and power. He rescues Lloyd Henry from starvation in prison, and Henry, as second in command, establishes a community in Las Vegas, Nevada. Although Flag possesses the ability to predict the future, along with several demonic powers, as the events of the book's narrative unfold, he begins to gradually lose his power as, as he as his plans proceed in an increasingly problematic manner. A weakness of Flag's that turns out to be completely disastrous for him and his followers is that Flag cannot read the minds or track the movements of individuals who have mental defects or illness, and some of these individuals end up destroying Flag's key plans to rule the world. Okay, let's stop there. Um, that's, that's setting up what's going on with Flag. That's basically what we were just talking about, but yeah, I mean... He is like it's interesting how um, he tries to levitate and like he can't go as high, so mm-hmm. he is like losing some of his power as his followers are starting to leave him. It sounds like he can't see them all, but like that's one of the things that Nadine uses to like taunt him is to talk about how they're leaving you, they're leaving their posts quietly at night, and you don't see it, and um, he's losing his power. So he also, I think, is much like Pennywise, granted power by people. I don't think it's fear, but it's like um, it's like worship. It's like uh, uh, respect. The more people who respect and worship him and like look up to him and fear him, I think it gives him power. And mm-hmm. to have people starting to doubt him and leave, it is literally draining his power. Yeah, and that it feels pretty biblical, which we've talked about a mm-hmm. couple of times. Clearly, there's a lot of biblical references going on here and parallels. Uh, th- this idea of something being given power by the masses you know what i mean the people believe in something enough they will act on it and i think that like we're seeing that too with randall flag well and, and he to me also represents that sort of authoritarian i think there's a reason why it's compared to nazi germany in the sense that he is the strong man that people look to to solve their problems and the power in an authoritarian is granted to them by their by their followers right like the people mm-hmm. who believe in them who love them who fear them that gives them power and the worst thing you can do to people like that is to, you know, ignore them, don't care what they're doing, you know, don't follow them, don't listen to them. You kind of take the oxygen away from it and it weakens them. So I, I think in some ways King is making that comparison too. Yeah. You know, you ban them from Twitter, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're not wrong. Um, so what do you think about um, 
like his abilities being specifically tied to animals. I w- I've been wondering about this, mm. like where certain animals get a bad rap, man. But um, I think it's it's a very old idea, and that's what that's what King's tap tapping into. Like, very, there's a very ancient fear of like wolves, predators, snakes, crows, black cats. You know, these kind of things that we've proven. You know, since then, a lot of these are just you know they're just they're just animals, like much like the yeah. shark and Jaws, just an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in this in this book, he, he leans into that that nature, right? Yeah. And uh, the situations we find the characters in, you know, if you, people banded together, uh, you know, early man banded together in order to protect itself from things like wolves. And when you're a single person with a broken leg in the middle of the desert, a wolf is a threat to sure. you again, you know. And so like this idea of um, these creatures show up a lot of the times when people are alone. We think of like Mother Abigail being attacked by weasels or ferrets or whatever. uh like that—that's a fear that she's that she's held on to, and um, they come after her when she's alone. And uh, there's a lot of society. I mean, there, it's not. There's a professor of sociology in this story, so like that's a red flag to you to think about what society represents in this story, and and the like the loss of society, and um, like I've talked about sort of the idea of uh, man ultimately the, the the amazing quote by Glenn earlier that we talked about last not last episode but the one before um in our second book coverage where he talks about just like you know if one person's there i'll show you a saint two people i'll show you love or whatever it was and three people turns into a society and then like people start to argue and that is just natural human nature um and i think that's all wrapped up in this like society being rebuilt from the ground up stuff yeah this i mean is this is an envisioning of of a, of a new of a second America um, kind of rising from the ashes, but we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's back up and talk about our four travelers. Well, five, five. It's, uh, you know, Glenn Bateman, Larry Underwood, Ralph Brentner, and Stu Redman, and our favorite character, Kojak. Uh, (laughs) Kojak comes along and man, he does a lot more than I remembered. I I had forgotten so much about Kojak in this book. I thought that when we got the Kojak lived happily ever after on the on the the porch, I thought that was the end for Kojak yeah. in the story, and, and I was like so happy to see Kojak come back. This is like you said in one of our episodes past for the king for for the stand. Um, a lot of like animals aren't always treated great in in Stephen King novels, but Kojak like Kojak gets a sweet story all the way through. Yeah, he's great, man, and he he is he is a hero. He saves Stu Redman. You know, he's he's the best. I mean. Great dog. <laughs> um, I also wonder if King was like, if I'm writing a post-apocalyptic novel, I gotta have a dog in there because I feel like that's yeah. a staple, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so, what about what about our crew and their journey west? You know, uh, one of the things I thought is interesting, especially this time through, is Mother Abigail commands them to walk, and they do it, even though they talk about they're like, we could have driven, but we didn't. We decided to walk because she told us to, and they walk like hundreds of miles. Yeah. And um, Glenn Bateman puts forward the idea, I think it was him, about, like, why this may be. And he talks about, like, vision quests and, like, stripping away all these things out of your life and then, like, how the how that will give you focus. And um, I, I feel like that's King basically telling us why this is the case. Yeah, giving a reason to it. Yeah. So, so first off, Stu Redman falls. And we've touched on that already. But, yeah, viciously breaks his leg. 
And I, I think it's a brilliant move by King to set it up like he's going to die. Um, and he, he even throws in the line, that's the last they ever saw Stu Redman. Yeah, and you're like, that was oh, wild. shit, he's going to die. And then, yeah. uh, you know, like the very next chapter, they get captured by Randall Flagg and it's like shit goes down. And you're like, oh, OK, maybe maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> um, you know, my expectations were, were inverted there. But um, yeah, I think it's a brilliant move. This is a bit of, of story crafting that I just really enjoy in this book that that, that sort of misdirect really works. Yeah, I mean, and, and I bit I bit the hook, line and sinker because I thought I was like, OK, that's the last time they see Stu. And it seems like Stu's story is not over, but how many times in this story have we seen someone like Nadine or Harold or, you know, Nick, many other people who felt like they had stories that were unfinished that, that ended abruptly. Um, so I was, you know, he he did the, the again, the legwork to set it all up legwork because, you know, Stu also shatters his leg. Um, but it's all it's all been set up there so that now when this this final like sort of bait and switch where he's like, yeah, he's dead. And then we are able to eventually follow his story beyond that. Yeah. And he doesn't have like he doesn't make it out in an easy way either. It's not no. like, oh, once, you know, once it all goes down, eventually his leg heals and he walks out of the desert. It's not well, like I'll that tell you what, all. when uh, when Kojak stays behind, because that's the other thing is Kojak lives. And so he set this up. So, you know, that and Kojak leaves him with the others when he leaves initially. And you're like, oh, no. But then Kojak returns. And that's when you're like, wait a minute. If Kojak's right. back, and then Kojak starts bringing him food, and you're like, oh, and, and, and you know, would. He, he quickly yeah. starts to, to turn that on you, and then you start to think, well, what did that statement mean? And then the dawning realizations happens. It's like, well, I guess Glenn, uh, Larry, and Ralph are like all going to die. Yeah. And sure enough, that's what we get into. They get captured by Flag's men, uh, brought to like a holding cell, and um, Glenn gets kind of his own final scene where he Randall flag comes and meets with him personally with Lloyd at his side. And they, he just like laughs at him and is like, yeah. you're, you're like, he's like, I'm so unimpressed by you. And like, what, what did you, what did you take away from that scene? I mean, you love to see it. It's the meeting of the minds, right? So it's like the, the, the characters that are one set up to be a God and one set up to be like an all questioning professor and doesn't believe, you know, doesn't buy into faith necessarily. doesn't, doesn't do any of the stuff. So then he's met face to face with this God entity and then, uh, you know, laughs at him like you like realizes that, like, it's all a sick joke. And this this person, like, as you know, he's has, has him captured and everything. But, um, yeah. you know, you can't take away his like his sensibilities. You can't mm -hmm. take away what what Glenn Bateman thinks just by scaring him and putting him in a cell or even threatening him and, and then eventually killing him. Um, you can't control him. And I think, again, that's another moment where. Randall Flagg can't control everything, even yeah. as much as he thinks he can. Well, and we both like Glenn a lot, right? So so what did you think of his final moments? Like, did you, were you surprised? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely, for a second, I thought Lloyd might turn the gun on Randall. And I was like, mm -hmm. don't do that. I mean, that's also dumb. Don't, don't shoot Glenn and don't <laughs> shoot, don't shoot anybody, honestly. But uh, know, yeah. shooting Randall probably would have been a decent idea. I mean, it probably would have resulted in his immediate death, but. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and then Randall. The, I mean, it's violent, very violent. Just like yeah. shooting him till the clip is empty. He's just repeatedly shooting yeah, him. Yeah, Lloyd shoots him a lot. Yeah. One thing is, I, I was picking up on it. Maybe I'm wrong, but I felt like maybe Glenn was also he like saw the writing on the wall, and he knew that their death was going to be probably a torture. Like they were probably gonna be tortured to death, mm -hmm. and it felt like he was angling for a faster 
faster death maybe like he had to know that this and, and i think he was also kind of testing him to see like can i make this guy um explode on me and, and if so like i guess that would mean he's fallible i mean i think so yeah how much scarier is it if randall flag does remain the cool collected yeah. all-knowing calculating he would he would have won right yeah <laughs> most likely but instead his his anger gets yeah gets the better of him i think that glenn got one of the you know violent and you know gruesome but one of the best death scenes in terms of like what it represented and the way he went up face to face with randall flag yeah so let's talk about trash can man because that's our our next uh key and what happens what goes down so due to his savant talent regarding destructive devices the trash can man is assigned to search for weapons in the desert and assist in arming the fighter aircraft at indian springs air force base Trashcan Man performs his duties with proficiency until, while being teased by his fellow workers, a comment causes him to experience a flashback regarding his tormented youth. The Trashcan Man undergoes a schizophrenic episode and reverts to his old destructive ways, destroying several trucks and aircraft while killing the most experienced pilots in Las Vegas. He flees into the desert, overcome with anguish over his actions. At first, he plans to kill himself, but later he seeks redemption by bringing Flag the most powerful weapon he can find, an atomic bomb in the form of a nuclear warhead that has been detached from a missile. The trash can man transports the warhead across the desert in a trailer attached to an all-terrain vehicle, contracting a lethal case of radiation poisoning in the process. The sickness has reached its terminal stage when the Trashcan Man arrives in Las Vegas. The Trashcan Man ultimately causes Flag's apparent destruction as the hand of God descends from the sky and activates the warhead, destroying Las Vegas and every one of its inhabitants. Okay, so this is the, the, the big boom. Um, you also yeah. have Larry and Ralph who have been um, chained together and they're going to be ordered to be like pulled apart like pulled yeah. apart to death, you know, it's going to be some really horrific medieval shit that, that Randall's doing. And interestingly, all the people in Las Vegas are like, I don't know about this. This seems like disturbing, which is very different again from the Las Vegas uh, people that I feel like we're going to see in the show. But um, yeah, what was your take on this final showdown moment? So, so many things to talk about. So Trashcan Man is uh, a character that I couldn't figure out why he was in the story until the last moment. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. we kept getting the perspective. We kept getting all these different scenes, things that he was dealing with. At the beginning of this novel, if you'd given me sort of like a background ancillary uh, summary and you're like, this is kind of what the story's about, you know, a, a, a plague basically wipes everybody out. Uh, there's no possible way that I'm going to say like, oh, yeah, 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 like a pyromaniac brings a nuclear bomb to Vegas and then it goes off. And uh, of course, that's how this this story would end because it's yeah. so off the wall and and crazy. We we keep getting his perspective, and and he eventually gets the warhead, and we're like, of course, you know, that's like the the largest Chekhov smoking gun I've ever seen in my life in in a novel. Yeah. Uh, because you're like, okay, so he has that's a nuclear, <laughs> you know, a nuke, a nuke is now in play. You know what I mean? Like yeah. once once he's found it, um, and then yeah, going to the end. Randall Flagg's using abilities. He's like shooting lightning yeah. from his finger and he stuff. He shoots a lightning fireball thing that like slowly melts some guy's face and yeah. like goes up his whole, like burns out his eyes and then it flies up into the sky and turns into like yeah. a giant fireball, electric ball thing. Yeah, um, which which is like, I, I was kind of wondering, I don't, he didn't mean to do that. So that ball went into the sky, and then that's the whole hand of God situation. Which it kind of got like, turned into that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah it doesn't seem. But, 
But yeah. like this is we talked about before biblical things in this story. And if this story, if any story is going to have like a deus ex machina, yeah. like a hand of God literally coming down and exploding a nuke in Vegas, like he's set it up. He's done the he's again yeah. done the legwork to be like it's a biblical like there is clearly things that are not explainable. Yeah. I mean, um, the force and, behind Mother Abigail is God, right? Like basically. So like you can't be angry when God plays a role, I guess, you know, at least God's a character. I mean, basically. Uh, so one thing I thought about with Trash Can is that he kind of is the golem of this story, right? Yeah, totally. I did not think about that either. Yeah. And the nuke is the is the ring, right? Uh, maybe. I mean, we've talked about in our Lord of the Rings coverage how it might represent that. But, you know, yeah, I thought it was interesting that he's I mean, obviously, it's not a one to one. No characters are one to one here. But um, he is this like, you know, semi evils, <laughs> sometimes, you know, sometimes good, maybe not good, but like working against the bad. Um, and then he ends up being, you know, a key figure in the downfall of the Dark Lord. Um, even though he, you know, is not a character you would consider a good guy by any stretch. I think it's also interesting that it's like one of the dangers and one of the like many drawbacks of this style of like authoritarian strongman governance. Um, and it's kind of just like the biggest bully wins kind of mentality is that the bullied who are, you know, often fall in line, they are damaged and they are um traumatized and they carry that with them and those people can become dangerous in their own way and they can they can you can you can create a dangerous situation where someone will explode on you you know like yeah you know obviously pun intended here i guess but um uh and trash can is that too right like he is He's everything's great until all of a sudden, you know, the 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 teasing triggers him and reminds him of bullies, you know, from the past. And then he's off the deep end, you know. Yeah, I mean, these characters, they they really have nothing to lose. Right. Like if you're a character like Randall Flagg, you're building up all of this. You have so many things to lose and these underdogs are coming at you um, at some point, like somebody's going to strike a blow. And and like these typically things tend to topple when when they do. Um, so yeah, I agree. Like yeah. this, the... I, I mean, I guess the idea is he couldn't see Trashcan because of his like altered mind or whatever you want to call it, different kind of intelligence. Same reason he couldn't see Tom Cullen. But it is interesting that much like you know Sauron, right? Like his his eye can see so much, but it can't see certain things, or it's distracted. Right. Maybe it's distracted by, you know, it's not necessarily said that Larry and and you know Ralph like completely distract him in this moment but maybe that's why he doesn't realize that Trashcan Man is coming up on him with this bomb until it's too late just one of the wildest endings I could have possibly imagined I just <laughs> it, it's so wild and I can't I, I wonder what they're going to do in the show so one thing that's interesting too is Larry um he's like full believer by the end him and Ralph both right they're like they're like chanting I'll fear no evil over and over again yeah. they've mm -hmm. basically turned into like prophets of the lord I mean, they've traveled and literally like that, that quote, they've traveled through the valley of death. Yeah. Like, like all of that that's wrapped up in that yeah. verse. I, I um, personally find this a little bit less interesting than what I was kind of hoping for with Larry. But in the sense that he goes from being completely selfish to like, you know, doing the most selfless sacrifice. Um, I, I, it works. Um, I, I, I think it works thematically. I think it works for the character. It just, I don't know. I wanted to see... I don't. I guess as someone completely giving themselves 
over to a higher power is always going to be less interesting to me than finding a way to not be selfish in like a more mortal realm sort of situation, right? Like to, yeah. you know, your, your well, day finding self enlightenment kind of yeah. thing. Like they're, they're finding it from within. But again, I, I realize that's highly subjective. That's just me and my relationship to religion. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other people uh, probably love that is like, you know, the perfect ending for him. I will say regardless of the religious stuff, I, I, I still think like Larry's character, like you said, he, at the end, he's not making a sacrifice on purpose. Yeah, they true. they are going on the mission on purpose, which is. But he does have, he does like have faith that it's going to work out for them, though. Yeah, you know? that's true. Like he never really doubts that. But he doesn't. My thing is like he doesn't. He doesn't. It's not like he made like a Glenn. Glenn like was like actively involved in his own sacrifice. Where yeah. I feel like Larry was in the situation, and then a lot of things cascaded, and and event. He died a hero because he went on the mission. Not because of like his last uh, acts. Yeah, I did think it was wild that they were like, "Oh fuck!" Like, like one of their last one of their last lines is like, "Oh fuck," and <laughs> like because it's like, of course that that's what everybody's last lines probably are. Yeah. So when he when the like the ball of electricity hits with the nuke and then like blinding flash a light, there is like a moment where King describes like this enormous hunched figure with like yellow cat eyes. That is like right. there for a moment before it like zips away. It's actually before the explosion, right? Like right before the explosion. Yeah. Um, and then it just leaves like clothes on the ground, I think, and some boots. Yeah. Which um, felt like very anticlimactic to me. Like that was like he did. He clearly wasn't defeated in the story. Yeah. And like we get that at the end as well, obviously. Yeah. But I mean, definitely it's a defeat, but it's not a permanent one. Right. Like right. it's because this being again is sort of eternal. There's a lot of these like eternal powers that like you can defeat them for a time, but they can always come back. Yeah. I also thought it was really interesting when we're in flags point of view where he talks about how there could be one or two others like him in other parts of the world. And he like realizes he might have to deal with that one day. Um, right. So he's not necessarily unique, which I, I thought was fascinating. They've been around forever, if there are multiple, but specifically he had been around forever, but he's clearly like what we get at the end. There's like a reincarnation thing that's happening. So he has to like start from start yeah. from the ground up. And uh, it is just interesting that it seems like at every catastrophe, maybe that's the peak of his existence. And then he has to repeat it um, and create tragedy or create these moments again. I was just surprised that he didn't like have a moment of like utter defeat it just felt like he zipped away like you yeah. said it was like a defeat at the hands of people not believing in him because like the the, the, the well jig it, was it's up. like a it's like an it lives moment and, and it's like that kind of ending where it's like the monster the monster persists you know despite what people know yeah which we've gotten in a lot of king stories like we like we know at the end of one of the many at, ways you can end a horror book <laughs> yeah at the end of uh the shining i remember there's like a creature that leaves and flies yep. up into the air there's like you know pennywise is clearly not well it seems it, like fully we, we were talking about a little bit before we started recording but like you know this is probably cosmere stuff right like, this is probably mm -hmm. like greater king um interconnected storytelling stuff and we don't know because we haven't read Dark Tower, so we we uh, we haven't seen. I I think that's supposed to be the most like inner workings of the Cosmere, and really kind of lays mm -hmm. it all out. So, uh, I, I for one am like, I'm I feel like I might finally be ready to read a Dark Tower yeah. book in the way that I yeah. didn't feel like I was before. 
I feel the same way. I mean, we've we've read so many King books at this point. Like we, you know, not nearly. Which close is funny because we've only read like a tiny fraction of the number right. of King we, books there are. But we've read a lot of the major ones that I feel like yeah. you need to have read to go into this. And I feel like you said to read the Dark Tower before now, we would be. I think we could appreciate some of the references and be like, oh yeah, like I kind of know that that's a thing. But now going in, like I am very excited to at some point dive into that because and I was doing some research. I was looking at stuff earlier once i finished the book and they turned this into a marvel comic which the stand marvel comic like i want to check that out that sounds awesome like this oh yeah i've seen i've seen some uh screen caps of that i would love like that this this is a super cinematic story um that's just like begging to be like turned into a comic like it is and i i can't i want to dig into that and then that led me into the dark tower is the same thing the dark tower also has marvel comic runs Mm. um and then it just i like you said i think i think i'm ready i didn't know they were marvel that's cool yeah I, I, I'm very ready to get into the the larger King universe, and I want some answers. You know, yeah. at this point, uh, I've enjoyed each individual story as a standalone story, but I think at this point he's he's hinted at it enough. Um, and something I also didn't realize is he started writing the Dark Tower in like the '80s, early '80s, and I thought that this was like a you know 2000s thing i thought that he was like it was like oh, no. later in his career. Yeah, no, he's been doing it for decades. I mean, this is stuff he's been setting up since very early in his career and threading into everything he does. And I don't know, it's really fascinating because I I was thinking today about how he is really good at these standalone novels. Like there's not a lot of writers who are creating these massive standalone novels. So you're like Carrie, The Shining, It. And it's like this one book and like The Sand, we divided it into three and within the book itself it's divided into three. And I feel like, I was like, why didn't he sell this as three books? It could have worked as, you know, worked as a trilogy and all this stuff. But there's something to be said for like having that one tome and be like, no, it's the stand. It's one book. And I know it's kind of cool. And like uh, props to him for doing it. But he also uses his Cosmere stuff to like, you know, his Macroverse stuff to like tie it all together, much like some grand work of epic fantasy. I don't know, it's just neat how he kind of has both, he has it both ways. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was talking to you before the episode about Dark Tower stuff and how I, I'm very fascinated to read a King fantasy, I don't know, like kind of sci-fi, I don't really know. It's but, got, no, but it's fantasy like, it's story. It's fantasy, yeah, I think. It's like a right. dark fantasy, uh, horror fantasy. I, I'm excited to read a, a, the, a fantasy, Stephen King fantasy that's not seated in like a horror story. It's yeah. not, and I'm sure there will be horror elements, but I, what I mean is that like, it'll be a full on fantasy if we're jumping multiverse things and, you know, the God crazy, yeah. like Lovecraftian well, God. And, and I was telling you that that was one of the books that like I had started right before we started the podcast. I think it was one of the, the very last books I had started reading and then I haven't picked it back up again because I kind of got into the mode of, well, we might cover that one day, so I better not read it now. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and I don't know if it's still the truth or not but i remember hearing them talking about making a dark tower television series so i've also been kind of waiting because i've definitely heard like lackluster things about the dark tower film that came out a little while ago um yeah we do have like one or two more king stories that we can jump into before the dark tower if we wanted to sort of wait oh absolutely there's there's a lot of more stephen king misery i know we want to do misery salem's lot anyway um let me read you this final bit of, of, of flag summary and we can talk about this. At the end of the novel, the quote, hand of dog, hand of dog the hand of dog, the hand of, uh, <laughs> the hand of Kojak. Um, <laughs> at the end of the, maybe that is, maybe it's a big paw, a big fucking yeah. God paw comes down and Kojak's like, 
fuck you. <laughs> I've always been really, I mean, like, genuinely, like, growing up religious, I always thought it was so interesting. This is, like, a child's thoughts, too, so you have to bear with me, but, like, dog and God being, like, the inverse of each other, like, there's something there, that right? Means like, dogs something. are very associated yeah, with man, God. Yeah, man, I'm with you. <laughs> okay, so... At the end of the novel, the hand of God detonates a nuclear bomb, destroying Flag's gathered followers as well as Las Vegas. The revised expanded edition of the novel includes an epilogue in which Flag, in a new incarnation, awakens in an unknown tropical location where he meets a primitive tribe. Flag then attempts to convince the tribe's members that he has arrived to teach them the ways of civilization, identifying himself as Russell Faraday. Uh, he also earlier said his name was Richard. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know these RF, you know, these RF things. I don't know what that means. Maybe we'd learn more in the, in the other books, but like, yeah. What did you think of this final, this final scene here? Like, what does it all mean? Yeah. I said the, the, it felt anticlimactic with the, the stuff at the end of where you just sort of zipped away, but this is, this was the, the thing that made it okay. This was the thing that made it feel oh, It's interesting that it wasn't full. in the original version, right? Like this is in the expanded expanded edition. oh really this wasn't in the original yeah this wasn't in the 1978 version this was in the 1990 version that we read that the expanded materials it feels very like bookmarking and like very like completing the circle yeah. of the story and and like I, I enjoyed it for what it was and this you know it's a, the it lives ending like you're talking yeah. about like oh you know it could happen again one day That's well what this, with the... this kind of helped me also further solidify what i how i think of randall flag as a thematic entity in this mm -hmm. story because when you come up with a villain like this, as a writer, I think you're going to have to go like, what does this thing represent? What what like pieces of humanity or pieces of the universe are sort of bound up and uh, represented here? And at the end, I think there's a huge bit of colonialism going on, right? Like, I For am sure. here to bring you civilization. I am a white man and I yep. am going to show you the way of war and technology and so he really does represent like man's overreach, you know, like uh, the, you know, the whole book is about a man-made disease that kills everybody, right? Like, so in that sense, it's, it, the whole book is about that. It's about mankind's overreach and um, arrogance and flag really is like the embodiment of arrogance. And what is in one of the arrogant ass things that's happened throughout history people being colonized right like i know better than you i am here to bring you religion or bring you my way of life and um i do think it is important to note that randall flag is a white dude um because you know we're one of the worst perpetrators of that yeah it definitely brought that all the way around um it, it was a uh, interesting to see also from the perspective of uh, he doesn't remember anything in the way that someone who doesn't remember anything but is an entity is like this godlike like you know lovecraftian creature or whatever yeah. uh how even not knowing anything and not knowing who they are or anything their like instinct like their animal instinct is to just like continue where they left off like yeah. okay now let me just build up from the ground up again uh taking taking the influence from these people and and like starting over it's i don't know it does seem to me like these these beings if i'm gonna say that randall flag is similar to pennywise which i think he kind of is um they tend it, it, it seems like it's hinting that they bind at some point to like a person like an actual human being and sort of integrate into them 
um, because we also get some of this stuff with Pennywise, right? Where he like references having like something gray was his name in the past, yeah. right? And like mm-hmm. there's like some references to him being like a person. Um, yeah. And the craziest part about Pennywise, too, just to go back to that, <laughs> is didn't Pennywise like come to Earth on a meteor? Yeah, and, like, he did. Yeah. Like, so he's like yeah. he's both, right? Like it feels like there's this ancient entity, but it, it, it at some point sort of fuses with a human being, is my guess. And that's what yeah. I think is going on with Randall Flag too, because these these ancient beings have all this power yet um i think their humanity in many ways grounds them to the world and when they lose that they they tend to like lose their power or lose their grip on things and something else about that that you just kind of clicked in my mind is like they they're these crazy creatures eternals whatever they are and they but they have sort of small scale goals in yeah. turn in the grand scheme of things like they're like let me terrorize people and like feed they just want to be worshipped they want to be feared they want to feed right, right? Like, like small yeah. in the grand scheme of things like small not to the humans who are having to deal with it but small in like the universe's sense um so yeah it is interesting that like they do bind to like a specific thing and then just stick to that instead of like being like let me just take over the world yeah and then move to the next planet and like like or you know jump multiverses who i i don't really know yeah, I feel like there's got to be some sort of motivating power beyond these motivated these like uh, <laughs> core like almost they're almost like the de- seven deadly sins. I, I I don't know. That's like an example that I would draw is like, you know, if if Pennywise represents like but not the sins, I guess they're, they're representing like emotions or something fear. and Yeah, arrogance I don't and, know, man. Like I assume there are answers in the Dark Tower. So maybe one day we'll get them. Um, let's talk a little bit about Tom Cullen. Tom Cullen travels west, transmitting a hypnotically imprinted cover story to gain entrance into Las Vegas, and is able to avoid detection by Flag. Cullen's anonymity seems to stem from his disability, as Flag tells Jurgens that every time he tries to see the third spy, all he sees is the moon. This confirms Jurgens' sighting of Cullen earlier, while both were on Las Vegas work crews. It is Jurgens' desire to protect both Cullen and his status as a spy that compels her to commit suicide, rather than submit to further questioning from Flag. The sight of the full moon rising over Las Vegas triggers Cullen's post-hypnotic suggestion, and he begins the return trip to Boulder, appropriately noting M-O-O-N, that spells moon. During his return trip to Boulder, Cullen encounters Redman, who has suffered from a broken leg and, due to exposure, pneumonia as well. Originally, Cullen was far east of where Redman fell, but a prophetic dream tells him that he must double back to find Redman. With help from Andros's spirit, who appears to Cullen in visions, Cullen is able to nurse a delirious and dying Redman back to health, while they are snowed in for much of the winter in motels in central Utah and western Colorado. Together, the pair return to Boulder to report the destruction of Las Vegas. Okay, so Tom Cullen, who, by the way, I was going to say, if anybody is, I think, the Samwise of this book, it might be him. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I definitely agree with that, for sure. Uh, A lot more goes on with Tom than I kind of expected. I thought Tom would would mosey on back on his own. over time well he cut his story like provides purpose to the whole spy plot line right because otherwise mm-hmm. it's kind of pointless because everybody just dies yeah everybody and, just and dies dana dana dies what do they learn him. nothing yeah dana dies protecting him uh which you know noble cause to die for and it was you know she, she big sacrifice and um but yeah for him to, to to one of the most affecting parts of the book is when 
uh, Nick shows up in his dreams for the first time. Yeah. And I was like, of course, Nick had to come back in some way. I didn't know we were going to Obi-Wan Kenobi, Nick, Nick Andrews, <laughs> but he's like, he's way more powerful than you ever imagined. Now. You're going to possibly imagine. Uh, so he, <laughs> yeah. he comes back and I, you know, I loved it. And Tom kind of got the inkling that he was dead because he kept turning away from him uh, in his dreams. And it was just sad, but, but affecting and, and um, made me love Tom as a character more. Yeah. Uh, because that relationship is, is one of my favorite parts for sure. And he comes back and stays Stu, right? Yeah. Which, again, like Stu's fall ends up saving him, but then he's also saved by Kojak and Tom Cullen. And um, so is Kojak like the Eagles? Then, <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's just really sweet. And then, um, at some point, Tom has like a vision of an elephant, or he reports having seen an elephant. It was all he saw in his dream, or something. And I was wondering if that is like. We got a lot of references to a turtle yeah. and it. Is this the version of that where we're getting we're getting Maybe. an elephant reference? Maybe there's an elephant god or elephant being? I'm into I'm it. I'm sure there are answers to all these questions, but I don't know. I'm so excited to eventually have these answers. And it's just this like long, I don't know, this long journey we've been on through Stephen King stuff. And, you know, even I think even if they don't live up to the to the expectations that I've set for them at this point, like it'll be fun to know like <laughs> the, all of the inside information. Yeah, uh, we got to read some like really bad Stephen King too, because I I know there are books that people say are just awful. Yeah. Um, I, I I'm just like this guy is so produ- productive. He's written so many books over the years and so many different parts of his life and states of mind. Um, I'm just be fascinated, but um, it's a weird thing to want to read a bad book. Yeah. But I kind of do want to read a bad Stephen King. I mean, book. <laughs> I've heard that Maximum Overdrive is like the main crux of of the Dark Tower well, universe. That's, that's a really bad movie for sure. <laughs> oh. <Right. laughs> Like, yeah. like, but what it all comes down to is like at the end of all of it is this coked up, you know, white guy from Maine and he's just fucking, he's like, yeah, I mean, ultimately he is the final boss, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, one last character we got to talk about. And do you want to talk more about Tom Collin? Do we, do we give him the proper, I, I thought it was interesting that they, they get snowed in, in, in Colorado of all places. Right. Is that a, was that a shining reference? For sure. Oh, and they, I, I thought there was a, there was a part I thought of you where Stu um, wants to give Tom Cullen a uh, sort of a gift and he, they end up watching movies Yeah, and he watches them in a, like a, on a projector rather than on like a VCR. And he talks about how, like, he's like, Oh, I could have done that, but there's just something about like being in a movie Film theater style. yeah, and, and watching it, you know, that way. Um, and I was like, there is something about that, man. I missed that <laughs> in, my, in my, in my pandemic life. I mean, there's a reason, there's a reason why, going to see like a 70 millimeter print of a movie is still like it's just it's so i don't know it's very tactile it just feels like what movies were made to be seen on like it's on film it's very you can tell that like king is a fan of movies too right like you know what i'm saying like he's such a pop culture fan you know yeah um and that comes across in this too um, and then, yeah, referencing his own book with The Shining and the fact they get on a snow crawler. And mm-hmm. I don't know, there was just a lot of, you know, parts there. It did kind of go on a long time, which I, I've did. seen some criticism of like, why are we spending so much time? It definitely did. But, you know, it also kind of reminded me of the extended ending of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Where there's all this extra <laughs> shit that goes on that after the fact. So I don't know if he was leaning into that or not. Um, but speaking of that, we, we, we were remiss to not talk about Franny and how... She kind of doesn't do anything else for the rest of the book. Um, so let's talk about Fran. Wait, so is she like the Eowyn Galadriel, like like uh, female Tolkien character stand-in? Because like there's not a lot that goes I, on I with I mean, basically, characters? right? Like she doesn't, 
she gets relegated to to baby duty essentially. So Goldsmith is opposed to Redman traveling west, but comes to terms with the journey when she realizes that Redman is compelled to follow through with the trip. Goldsmith later takes up residence with Lucy Swan and delivers a baby boy. Although initial joy is expected due to the birth, Goldsmith's child falls ill with the superflu and she is devastated. However, she is rewarded by news of both Redman's return to the free zone and her baby's recovery. Throughout the novel, Goldsmith becomes more and more homesick for her native Maine, and by the end of the book, she, Redman, and Baby return to Agunquit. The last chapter also confirms that Goldsmith has become pregnant with her second child, with Redman as the father. Yeah. So, yeah, Franny, yeah, I was kind of disappointed. Like, she was such an interesting character to, like, totally sideline for the third act of this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, kind of a lot of a lot of work was done to build up that character, uh, and I think there was a lot more to what could have happened. Um, yeah, ultimately a baby making machine, apparently, and, uh, and and like I'll also say, again, this problem can be solved by having another woman character of significant of significance. I mean, you got Dana, I guess, but like the fact that she is our only main character who's a woman puts a lot of pressure on her to do a lot of stuff, you know, like you can, so you know, the easy way to get around this, cause you can ask like, well, she's pregnant. So should she have gone along at the end? She would have, you know, like what would have happened with, you know, yes, those are all fair points. Um, but you, you know, if Ralph, for example, was a woman, which the show did, you know, you can, you can change some of this pressure, I guess. But, but all of that aside, not just the fact that she's a woman, the fact that this character just kind of doesn't do anything else in the third act is just a little, I don't know, underwhelming. Yeah, agreed. Uh, in terms of things going forward for society, we do learn that like the immunities pass to the child, and like she's given yeah. like a half immunity to the first child that she's giving birth to. So, so see. what did you think? Did you think that's where we were going when when it was revealed that the baby had the super flu, or did you think, oh shit, this baby's gonna die? I thought that yeah, I thought he might just one last time give you the like the <laughs> pull the rug out twist, and just twist like, the dagger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because again, like. Uh, the, unfortunately children are lost in pregnancies and and it is like a part of life and it is sad and, yeah. and like but this baby was so important she carried yeah. it the whole time yeah the and again book. to get back to the biblical stuff there's yeah. a lot wrapped up in in a pregnant you well, know and Randall flags babies dies and hers does not so yeah and Stu's having dreams of it and stuff and you know he's it seems like it's very it is biblical in a way like he's gonna he's gonna be the next great leader I don't yeah know. my theory about um everyone shining that's remaining like that stands true for me um because like like you said he's yeah. dreaming of things right. that are not associated with abigail or with randall flag he's dreaming about what's going on in the future with like uh franny and all that so yeah, i still maybe hold, hold to that that's a good theory you know honestly i i i can't fault you there what did you think of her going like you know this this boulder free zone's nice and all but it's getting a little packed around here yeah, right i'm gonna head back to maine with my newborn <laughs> there's been like 18 new babies in six months so we got to get the hell out of here i was like all right yeah. i do think i do agree with king that it seems like an epically bad idea to start arming the police in the boulder free zone i also agree that it probably would happen but yeah i, yeah. I love the point where he was like uh arming the police you know or it was a situation where like a drunk pushed a cop through like a glass window or something 
And he's like, you know, now we have to arm the police. And he's like, well, that would probably end up with a dead drunk instead of an injured cop, you know. And that, yeah. I think that's proven to be true. Yeah, and then um, the ghost of Glenn Bateman, like, comes to Stu, and he's thinking of all the socio... <laughs> no, I'm serious, but, like, he, he's thinking of all the sociological like ramifications of giving weapons yeah, to cops right. and all the things yeah, that happen he's learned and, his yeah. learned his lessons from old glenn bateman um and yeah i think it also represents like that's that's the old shit that they keep talking about it's like you're gonna bring the old shit back and you're gonna start arming people again and you know there's gonna start being wars again and oppression and racism and all this stuff and you know i don't know it's kind of an interesting thought right and he talks about this like resting period how it's going to be a, like a generation for humanity to sort of pause and yeah. then it's going to come, it sounds like it's going to come back and he thinks, you know, who knows where, because all this shit's just laying around is like an interesting bit at the end. He's like, it's just right there to be picked back up again. Yeah. Um, and I think he's he's saying something thematic there too, right? Like, mm-hmm. even if you decide to put away, you know, the harmful parts of society and in, in, in favor of, of, you know, the better ones, the good ones, the better angels of our nature or whatever, like that stuff is still right there. It's still like within mm-hmm. arm's reach and it well, can always it, be picked back up again. Yeah. That generational, the generational gap is so such an inter- interesting one to think about too. Cause um, I was watching a documentary about Miyazaki recently and he was talking about, um, you know, he grew up just post world war two, just after the mm-hmm. bombings that happened in, in Japan um, and like what that did to rock the Japanese like societies and things and that whole generation is so like anti-war and, and like because they've they dealt with that kind of stuff and then like other generations come along that didn't directly deal with that stuff and then fires you know these people are ready to go to war for their beliefs and stuff because they don't remember the horrors of war and it's this like ugly cycle that society is always in and like that you know this brings up that that's the exact same idea um yeah. like they, they even mentioned like you know we won't fight over all this stuff but our grandkids one day we'll let our grandkids worry about it because they'll be killing each other for it well, and I think King's making some similar points here. Um, I, before we leave this book, uh, we, 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 had to, we had to sum it up, and I want to know what you think of it overall. But before we even do that, I have one little detail I just got to point out because I couldn't believe it when I read it. And I was like, you motherfucker, Stephen King, I can't believe you got away with this. <laughs> he has Trash Can think to himself that he feels like the figment of someone else's imagination. And I was like, God. <laughs> Damn it, Stephen King! You had a you had a character think of the fact that he is a character created by you in the yeah. narrative. All right, King is canon. He's canon in all of this multiverse stuff. I promise. Oh my god! Uh, just the idea of a character like recognizing that he is a figment of someone else's imagination is just amazing to me. I don't know. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe he got away with it. That's awesome. But but anyway, I had to point that one out. Uh, but yeah, I do want to know. So. Um, I, and I, I want to kind of talk about where I'm at with it too, but this, the, the stand has been like a, a big title in mm-hmm. the, uh, the history of this podcast you know, whether it's on episodes or off, we've talked about it a lot. Um, we've known that this adaptation was coming a long way away and, um, I feel like it's been built up a lot. So, so what was your take on this book and, and how it compares to the other King books we've read? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're prepared to rank them yet. Maybe we mm-hmm. could do that on a bonus episode one day or yeah, something. Maybe. maybe like rank some King projects or King books. Right. But what did you think of this book overall? Expectations were extremely high, obviously coming in. Um, and what I would say is like the, it met expectations. It, it surprised me. And, and, um, I don't think that I ever could have predicted because I never looked into what this book was about really. 
I genuinely had no idea where it was going. Even the title, The Stand, like I had no idea. I didn't understand that. And I guess I should ask you, like, is it, do you think it, it represents like the stand, like the, the to take a last stand, like the stand of I mean, humanity? Several characters say something about taking their last stand a few times in this book. I, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of surprising how many times the word stand, you know, taking a stand gets thrown around. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I think that's what it is. Me too. So it's the last uh, stand of humanity. Right. So. You know, I had no idea what it was about. The title was weird to me. The cover was weird when I saw it on my dad's bookshelf growing up. Uh, I just had yeah. no idea. And then so I didn't have any frame of reference. And then we read all of these other King books. We read it. And, and um, it has like been so lodged in my brain forever that I was like immediately coming into another massive epic tome of Stephen King's. I'm always going to c- compare it to it. I couldn't stop comparing the two, honestly. And I kept, yeah. I kept feeling like I was pitting them against each other. Um Mm-hmm. And I do think that that the stand is now right, it's right there with it for me. Like, I, I can't just I can't really decide whether one is better than the other because they're so very different. This is King's like Lord of the Rings sort of a sprawling yeah. story. And then the other is like a Goonies, like classic horror icon, you know, creature entity thing. And weird as hell. <laughs> it is a weird book. <laughs> The way that he tells stories are sim- is similar sometimes to me, but but yeah, the stand is right there for me now, and and I was, I'm surprised okay, so, so because right I'm su- there among your favorites, you would say. among my favorite, I would say it and 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 the stand now are my favorite Stephen King novels. I can't decide between the two, really. Yeah, and I'll, I'll like I'll probably come back to it as we like try to rank them later. So in like The Shining, Pet Cemetery, stuff like that, they they are kind of like a, slightly, a second tier, or? slightly below. Yeah, I would say like mm-hmm. The Shining. The Shining would probably be right after. I would have to think about it a little more. Yeah, to like think about it. Okay, we should do sure. it sometime. Maybe we need to yeah. cover a few more before we're ready to do this. I don't know. Um, so for me, I, I, we talked about it before that like I would tell people this was my favorite Stephen King novel for a long time. Um, I read it very early on. I actually don't remember if I read it before I initially read it. I, I think I read it back to back with it, like within a few months of each other. Um, I just can't remember which one was first. Um it might have been the stand first, honestly, because I, I felt like this was a, an approachable point for me because I'd heard enough about it and I kind of knew the premise and people told me it was kind of a fantasy book in some ways. So I was like, OK. Um, in many ways, it lived up to that. But I the more I've read King, the more this book feels. A little bit unusual for him, um, and in that sense, I don't know that this is my favorite King book anymore. Now, I really enjoyed this reread of it, um, and I kind of want to read some more King books, but um, I, I just don't expect I'll be saying it's my favorite anymore when people ask me, as much as I did really like it. Um, I also just think I have a much better grip on what this book is now, covering it for a podcast and talking about it for as much as we have. Um, you know, had a great time with it. I think the premise of a super flu, you know, is a terrifying premise that we have all lived through now um obviously not to the deadly level of this book but that's going to affect the way i feel about this book i'm sure that's something i can't escape and if i had read this without having lived through covid (laughs) or lived during covid um i i probably would have a different reaction to it yeah um do do you still put it up as one of your favorite king novels or has it fallen yeah it's in i i think it i think it is in the top tier uh maybe maybe yeah i don't know i'd have to think about it for an actual like ranking episode yeah um well i don't know if it's number two either for me Mm -hmm. i'll say that much but i think it is it is close it is close yeah um 
something that I do want to say, like the, the things that the, these two novels do that's similar is that they this, the stories are so uh, sprawling. Like they do they do take yeah. you on journeys with the, these characters for such a long time. Um, and there's something this one even feels even larger than it in some ways. Um, which makes it kind of feel like you don't get to be as close to the characters. And there's something about it that's like, I'm biased at this point. It too. has a smaller scale in a right. weird way because it, it's like, it's so deeply tied to these characters and their lives and their childhoods, right? There's something very intimate, you know, it's all set in the same town. Like it's, this is a travel log. Like we yeah. got a lot of different locations. I think the main thing about it too is that it's like it's two books. It's the children. It's their childhood, like mingling, inner interwoven yeah. with their adulthoods, which which yeah. leads to the epic nature of the story. Yeah, and and honestly, the way that it interweaves in the book, which you don't get any in in the in the movie adaptation at all, at least the new one. Um, the way those two intermingle so and play off each other and, and the yeah. story, each like uh, parallel story builds at the same time. It's just such a cool idea for a book. Yeah. Um, I do love that as much as that book clearly has problems, which we've talked about at length in our first <laughs> few episodes. So I, uh, anyway, Stephen King fans, if you, uh, if you do want to hear us talk about more Stephen King books, we have lots of them in our coverage in the past and we are open to covering more. We want to cover more. So feel free to suggest them to us. You know, we're always, we're always uh, curious to know what like what people are really into, what people are looking forward to. Um, and is that going back to misery? Is that doing something like the Green Mile, you know, uh, or or even Shawshank Redemption, you know, yeah. like very unusual kind it's of books be, for him. It's going to be crazy to see like a entity creature in the Shawshank Redemption one day when we go to read it. It's gonna be like a, <laughs> yeah, when Pennywise shows up in the in the book, well, surprise! <laughs> in, behind the poster on the wall, uh, the right, they've, right. Like, uh but anyway um we wanted to thank all of our patrons who have supported us um and you know if you wanted to become a patron yourself we are going to be putting up a poll on patreon to determine uh our our first sort of quarterly patron voted project and the only way to vote on that is to be a patron um and when you get in there you also get bonus episodes which we record monthly we just recently did one on snowpiercer the first three episodes uh, which was a lot of fun and i think we're probably going to do um, the other version of the stand here's pretty soon. Um, whether it's this month or next, I don't know. Um, uh, but we will get to it soon and we'll be able to make some comparisons with the show. Um, and Stephen King fans who are, you know, watching the show, make sure to stick around for next week when we close that out. Um, cause we're not quite done with the stand yet. Yeah. Stephen King has written a new ending for that show. So it'll be interesting to see what he yeah. changes. I don't know that this, book needs another ending so i'm hesitant <laughs> also king isn't necessarily known for having you know sticking the landing always so yeah. the idea of him coming back and tacking another ending onto this i don't know i have my doubts but i'm op i'm going in open-minded i've heard a little bit a little spoiler about the last episode that's not even out yet and it's mostly that like the hand of god actually is kojak's hand coming oh, down it's from a dog heaven paw. the hand of dog yeah. comes hand down. of dog gotcha. comes down to save <laughs> humanity and by save i mean destroy Las Vegas. <laughs> okay um if you like this episode please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast uh app you use and if you're on youtube make sure to like and subscribe and comment and let us know yeah, and make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And we have a Council of Inklings. It's a group on Facebook. Absolutely. And we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Okay, now we can go and watch 
the last few episodes of the stand in anticipation of the i think the last episode comes out on yeah. thursday when I, this episode i'm comes worried out. i want i'm just gonna put it out there i'm worried i've heard and seen some some disturbing things so. um uh -oh. <laughs> uh, i'm I, i'm i'm hopeful I, you yeah. know, hope burns eternal. I hope that there's going to be good stuff. I'm sure there will be some good stuff in there, but there's going to be, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not looking forward to trash can man who I hear arrives next episode and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I just don't even know how you already, like, I don't know that character. You don't know what wild, I've seen, like, but I've seen some, I've seen some stuff, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe not. I, 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 I am going in with an open mind anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you join us for that uh, next week. And until next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.